the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Portions of the following program may be pre-recorded. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel. I want to deal today with a story. A story that I've shared many times, 
but I want to share it with a very different perspective today. I want to begin by reading a passage of Scripture. It's found in Isaiah, the 53rd chapter. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our diseases, our sicknesses, and carried our pain. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was, he was led like a, slam, a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before his shears is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After suffering in his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. That glorious statement of Isaiah in the 53rd chapter about our Lord, about Jesus, about our Messiah. Now, I want to, I want to share a story about Charles Finney. I want you to hear this with a searching of your own heart. This man ministered, and the story will begin sometime around 1820. 
it's estimated that he brought more than a quarter of a million men and women into salvation. And as the researchers went back after some years later to see what happened with the fruit he bore, they found almost everyone was still faithful before God. More than 80%. Now compare that to modern evangelists like Billy Graham when they went back and did research to see what happened with those he brought to the Lord in excess of 80% had left the faith completely, had turned away from Jesus. So something was going on in Charles Finney's life that allowed him to break the bondage of darkness and set the captives free. He begins the story. He has not been raised in the Christian church. He's had no religious training. And he is now in training as an attorney. He is reading the law. And now he is very seriously considering the question, how do I make my peace with God? See, the problem we're facing today is that many people, many that I speak with, who call me after the broadcast or before the broadcast, they think they've made their peace with God. But they have no authority in the heavenlies. They have no authority over the powers of darkness. So they're living their lives as though they're Christian and they are very religious. But we have no power. And as I talk with some, they are not particularly pleased when I bring this to their attention and suggest that they don't need more knowledge, that they don't need a better technique or some new strategy. They need a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. I've learned that God will allow me to crash headlong into a demonic stronghold in a person's life and recognize that no matter what I say to them or what scriptures I give them, they will not turn from their wicked way. They will be in full rebellion. He allows me to do that so that I can see very plainly that I have to be in a different place with Jesus if I'm going to break through. And I have now for some months been earnestly seeking Jesus, a new revelation of Jesus, a new understanding, a new a new infilling by the Holy Spirit. It's not the Holy Spirit that I'm seeking as much as it is I'm seeking Jesus and the power of his blood. Now, Luke 11 very clearly says that if we ask for the Holy Spirit, the Father is more than willing to give him to us, but we have to first meet the conditions. Those conditions are found in Jesus Christ not in some great wisdom or knowledge or some understanding of Scripture. They're found in Jesus. 
Let me just read a portion of this and then we'll talk about it. He writes, I was struck with the fact that the prayers that I had listened to from week to week were not answered. Indeed, from continued prayers and from other remarks, I understood that those who offered these prayers did not regard them as having been answered. I heard the people say continually that they wanted the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and they prayed for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but then I would hear them confess that they still were walking in leanness. When I read my Bible, I learned what Christ had said in regard to prayer and the answer to prayer. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Matthew 7, 7 through 8. I also read that God is more willing to give his Holy Spirit to those who ask him than earthly parents are to give good gifts to their children. This inconsistency, the fact that they prayed so much and their prayers were not answered, was a sad stumbling block to me. I did not know what to make of it. Was I to believe that these people were not truly Christians and therefore did not prevail with God? Did I misunderstand the promises and teachings of the Bible on this subject? Or was I to conclude that the Bible was simply not true? Here was something I didn't understand. And at one point it seemed that it would drive me into skepticism. It seemed to me that the teachings of the Bible did not all agree with the facts that were before my eyes. On one occasion, when I was in one of the prayer meetings, some of the attendees asked if I wanted them to pray for me. I told them no, because I did not see that God answered their prayers. I said, I suppose I need to be prayed for, for I am conscious that I am a sinner, but I do not see that it will do any good for you to pray for me, for you are continually asking, but you are not receiving. You've been praying for a revival of religion ever since I've been in Adams, and yet you have not seen it happen. You've been praying for the Holy Spirit to descend upon you, and yet you complain that he has not come. You've prayed enough since I have attended these meetings to have prayed the devil out of Adams. If there's any virtue in your prayers, he would answer. But here you are, still praying, still complaining. I was brought face to face with religion. I didn't like what I saw. On further reading of my Bible, it struck me that their prayers were not answered because they did not comply with the conditions upon which God had promised to answer the prayer. They did not pray in faith in the sense of expecting God to give them the thing for which they asked. For some time, this thought only led me to more questions. However, this relieved me. After struggling in that way for two or three years, I firmly concluded that whatever confusion there might be either in my own mind or in my pastor's or in the mind of the church, the Bible was, nevertheless, the very true word of God. 
Now this being settled, I was brought face to face with the question of accepting Christ and his gospel or pursuing a worldly life. The Holy Spirit was so much at work in me, though I did not know it then, that I would not leave this question unsettled for much longer. Now, let's stop a moment. The issue that we're going to have to face is that Finney was either going to believe the Bible or he was not going to believe the Bible. Today we say we believe the Bible, but we don't operate in a way that says we believe the Bible. We operate like the world, the flesh, and the devil. We love the things of the world, not the things of God. And so we have religious knowledge, but we've not put it into practice. We're full of ourselves. We're full of pride. We're full of our knowledge. Now, there's a reason why I'm sharing this story today. I am fearful of teaching the scriptures and giving you understanding and knowledge if you're not going to put it into practice. Of what value is it to have knowledge? And then you don't practice that knowledge. So this is the story of his conversion one Sunday night in the autumn of 1821, I made up my mind that I would settle the question of my soul's salvation. And if it were possible, I would make my peace with God. Now I have to stop there. Are you willing to do whatever it takes to make your peace with God? not to make your peace with religion, not to increase your intellectual understanding. Are you willing with what you now have, with what you now understand, are you willing to make your peace with God? And if you say, Pastor, I have peace with God, okay, show me. Show me him answering your prayers. Show me the flock that you have brought to him because of your testimony and your witness. And if you have no one you've brought to Jesus, you have a false peace. It's not the peace of Jesus. Am I offending you with this straight, straight confrontation? Because the tear of my heart is that I will have religious information and understanding of the gospel without the practice thereof. This is resulted. I have a, a dear friend who, who manages a Panera, books, a Panera restaurant. He texts me this morning and he said, Pastor, I haven't seen you for several months. Are you okay? What's happening? I wrote back and I said, no, I'm not okay at all. <clears throat> I've been eating one meal a day and I've been fasting completely several days a week. I've got to come to a new understanding of the revelation of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection. I refuse 
to live in my intellectual knowledge and not walk with Jesus. I want to walk with Jesus. I don't want religion. I want Jesus. Can I even say something else? If you offer me the full power and presence of the Holy Spirit, if that were possible, without Jesus, I'd say, no, thank you. I don't want the Holy Spirit, and I don't want power separate from the person of Jesus Christ. I need Jesus. Any seeking after the Holy Spirit for the Holy Spirit's sake without Jesus leads to fanaticism and error and death. Now he continues, I was very proud without knowing it. I had supposed that I did not care much about others' opinions of me. And I had, in fact, been quite obvious in attending prayer meetings and paying attention to religion while in Adams. In this respect, I'd led the church at times to think that I must be a Christian. But when I had to face the question, I found that I was very unwilling to have anyone know that I was seeking the salvation of my soul. When I prayed, I would only whisper my prayer after having plugged the keyhole in the door, lest someone should discover that I was engaged in prayer. Before that time, my Bible lay on the table with the rest of my law books. It never occurred to me to be ashamed of being found reading it any more than I should be ashamed of having found any of my other books. But after I had addressed myself in earnest to the subject of my own salvation, I kept my Bible out of sight as much as I could. If I was reading it when someone else came in, I would throw my law books on top of it to create the impression that I had not been in my it had not been in my hands. Instead of being outspoken and willing to talk with anyone and everyone on the subject as before, I found myself unwilling to converse with anybody. I want you to see what's happening. <clears throat> He's moving away from religion. And it's now becoming very personal for Charles Finney. It's becoming very personal. He writes, Tuesday night I became very nervous. And in the night a strange feeling came over me as if I were about to die. I knew that if I did die, I would sink down into hell. But I quieted myself as best I could until morning. You see, Charles Finney is is receiving from the Holy Spirit a very accurate picture of the reality of his empty, empty heart. Now, he could go to church and play like he was saved, even claim that he was saved, and totally avoid the question of making his peace with God and just say, oh, I have peace with God, I'm saved, I'm on my way to heaven. No, he's not. 
takes a great deal of honesty to finally be willing to say to Jesus, if you came today, I would sink down into hell. Because I have religion, but I don't have you, Jesus. Now I can tell you who the hardest people are to reach. Pastors. We're so full of ourselves. We're so full of our of our accomplishments and our background and our training. We're so full of our ministry. Most pastors in America are hellbound, tickling the ears of their people and not speaking the truth to them. And they're going to be held accountable for the salvation of their people as they misdirected them telling them that they could continue to walk in sin and that they were saved and could not be lost. It's hard to get a preacher to to move out of their flesh. It's hard to get a person who was raised as a Christian to move out of their flesh and their knowledge and begin to get serious about who Jesus is in reality, not in their fantasy imagination. At an early hour on Wednesday, I started for the office. But just before I arrived at the office, something seemed to confront me, as if an inward voice said to me, What are you waiting for? Did you not promise to give your heart to God? What are you trying to do? Are you endeavoring to work out a righteousness of your own? At that point, the whole question of gospel salvation was open to me in a marvelous manner. I think I then saw as clearly as I ever have in my life the reality and fullness of the atonement of Jesus. I saw that his work is finished work and that instead of needing any righteousness of my own to recommend me to God, I had to submit myself to the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. Gospel salvation seemed to be an offer to be accepted, something that was full and complete. And all that was necessary on my part was to agree to give up my sins and to accept Jesus Christ instead of a thing to be brought about by my own works. Salvation was a thing to be found entirely in the Lord Jesus Christ, who presented himself before me as my God and my Savior. North of the village, over a hill, lay a stretch of woods. I walked there almost daily when the weather was pleasant, but now it was in October. The time was past for my frequent walks. Nevertheless, instead of going to the office, I turned and bent my course toward the woods, feeling that I must be alone and away from all human eyes and ears so that I could pour out my prayer to God. But still my pride showed itself. As I went over the hill, it occurred to me that someone might see me and suppose that I was going away to pray. Yet there was probably not a person on earth who would have ever suspected such a thing so great was my pride and so much was I possessed with the fear of man 
that I sulked along the fence until I got so far out of sight that no one from the village could possibly see me. I then made my way into the woods nearly a quarter of a mile, went over on the other side of the hill and found a place where some large trees had fallen across each other, leaving an open place between. There I could make a kind of closet. I crept into this place and knelt down for prayer. As I turned to go into the woods, I remember having said, I will give my heart to God or I will never come down from here. I recall repeating this as I went up. I will give my heart to God before I ever come down again. But when I attempted to pray, I found that my heart would not pray. I had supposed that I could only be where, if I could only be where I could speak aloud without being overheard, I would pray freely. But when I tried, it was, my tongue was mute. I had nothing to say to God. Or at least I could only say a few words and those without any heart. In attempting to pray, I would hear a rustling in the leaves and would stop and look up to see if somebody was coming. I did this several times. Finally, I found myself sinking fast to despair. I said to myself, I cannot pray. My heart is dead to God. And it will not pray. I then reproached myself for having promised to give my heart to God before I left the woods. When I tried, I found I could not give my heart to God. My soul hung back and my heart was in no way going out to God. I began to feel deeply that it was too late, that I was past hope, and that God must have given up on me. Let's stop a moment. I suspect that some of you, when you pray, you have no sense of your heart going out to God. You're just praying. You're just saying words. You've learned how to say the simple little words of a, of a prayer. I pray for our family and pray for this and pray for that and thank him for a beautiful day and blah, blah, blah. No heart going out to God, no passion, no power, no conviction, just words. I love Charles Finney because he was willing to be naked before God. This is what I've meant this week as I've been talking out of the word, out of Hebrews, the third and fourth chapters, that we've got to get naked with God. We've got to stop playing church and stop playing religion and stop playing Christian and decide that we will get naked before God and not pray saying mere words, if our heart does not go out to God, stop. Don't tire God with empty words. He wrote, I then began to think my promise rash, that I would give my heart to God that day or die in the attempt. It seemed to me as if there were bindings on my soul. And... I was going to have to break my vow to God. A great discouragement came over me. I felt almost too weak to get up on my knees. Just then, I again thought I heard someone approach. 
I opened my eyes to see whether it was so. But just then it was distinctly shown to me that my pride was the great difficulty that stood in the way. An overwhelming sense of my wickedness in being ashamed to have a human being see me on my knees before God took such powerful possession of me that I cried out at the top of my voice and exclaimed that I would not leave that place if all the men on earth and all the devils in hell surrounded me. What, I said, such a degraded sinner as I am? On my knees, confessing my sin to the great and holy God? How can I be ashamed of any human being? A sinner like myself find me on my knees, endeavoring to make my peace with my offended God. The sin appeared awful, infinite. It broke me down before the Lord. Now again, let's stop. We avoid all of this confrontation with God by our religious prayers. Our heart not going out to God, our, our heart not being stirred. Our pride is so powerful that we're ashamed to be seen being naked before God. Adam and Eve wanted to dress up in their leaves as they covered their nakedness with their fig leaves or whatever they were. Before they could be dressed by God, they had to be stripped naked. Some of you, as I talk with you, you're dragging your feet. You're slow. You're afraid to take action. You think you have all the right answers and you're going to pour out the right answers on that poor sinner and nothing happens. You witness and you testify and it's blown off. I know I experience this. I come day after day to this broadcast and I'm trying to be so vulnerable with you and so naked. But it's so hard. I remember sitting when I was a young man in a very famous pastor's study with him. And I said to him, in response to a question, he asked me, um, Pastor, you're just starting in this ministry. I've been at it a number of years. How would you evaluate what you see in my life? Well, I thought he actually meant for me to answer that question, and so I answered the question. I said, I think you're a phony. I don't ever see you. I just see the outward smooth mover who's got it all together. Do you ever make mistakes? Do you ever, do you ever get naked? Do you go to sleep in that suit so freshly pressed? I said, I, I have a hard time relating to you because you're so perfect. Well, he was deeply offended. We were friends. Then he came and became the chaplain of the U.S. Senate. I tried to make an appointment to go see him. He wouldn't take my appointment. 
I understand why. That was a traumatic event for him. We don't like people to be honest. We love dishonesty. We love pride. We love prestige. We love comfort. We love entertainment. We love the world. I'm sorry. I'm not. I'm not willing to love the world anymore, and I'm not perfect. I'm a mess. I'm trying to understand the will of God. I'm trying to understand and and respond to the call of the Holy Spirit to humble my heart and to deal with reality as it is and not with my religion, not with my training and my, my masters of divinity. I throw it all away. I put it behind me. All of my accomplishments I cast out. They're nothing. I need the I need the presence of Jesus in a much more realistic way. My heart is my heart is seeking after Jesus. I don't care for I don't care for the church theology and the church doctrine and the church ritual and the church. I want to know what do the scriptures say? What does Jesus say? I watched a a priest, an Anglican priest, as he stood before his congregation and lifted the bread high, very dramatic with flowing beautiful words, breaking the bread and then handing it out to the people, and it was obvious he was so filled with pride and arrogance. There was no Holy Spirit presence there. I can imagine that people have experienced me the same way. I don't want that. (laughs) A young man said to me recently, Pastor, I really like you and I like your messages, but you seem, you act very superior to me. Well, I said that to an older pastor as well. I understand what he meant. It's time for us to humble our hearts. It's time for me to humble my heart. And I'm, I'm endeavoring to do that in every way I know. I want Jesus. Now, usually when we say we want Jesus, we're referring to a sentimental experience or we're referring to understanding, theology, doctrine. No, I want the person of Jesus. I want Jesus himself, for himself, by himself. And he writes, just at that point, this passage of scripture seemed to drop into my mind with a flood of light. Then you will pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for, for me with all of your heart. Jeremiah twenty nine twelve and 13. Somehow I knew that this was a passage of scripture, though I don't think I'd ever read it. I knew that it was God's word and God's voice that spoke to me. 
I instantly seized a hold of this with my heart. I had intelligently believed the Bible before, but never had I known that faith was a voluntary trust with one's heart going out to God, not just an intellectual state. I was conscious suddenly of trusting at that moment in God himself. I cried to him, Lord, I take you at your word. You know that I'm searching for you with all my heart and that I have come to pray to you and you have promised to hear me. This seemed to confirm that I could indeed fulfill my vow that day. The Spirit seemed to emphasize this idea in the words, when you search for me with all of your heart. I told the Lord that I would take him at his word, that I knew he could not lie and that I was therefore sure he heard my prayer and that I would find him. He then gave me many other promises from both the Old and the New Testaments especially some regarding our Lord Jesus. I never can in words make any human being understand how precious and true these promises appeared to me. I took them, one after the other, as infallible truth, the assertions of God who cannot lie. They did not seem to fall into my intellect so much as into my heart, to be within the grasp of the voluntary powers of my mind, I took hold of them and fastened upon them with the grasp of a drowning man. I continued to pray in this way and to receive and take and hold the promises. I don't know how long I prayed. I prayed until my mind became so full that I was aware. And before I was aware, I was on my feet. I was going down the hill toward the road. I didn't really think about whether I had been converted. But as I went brushing through the leaves and bushes, I remember saying, if I am ever converted, I will preach the gospel. I soon reached the road that led to the village, and I began to reflect on what had passed. I found that my mind had become wonderfully quiet and peaceful. I said to myself, what is this? I must have grieved the Holy Spirit entirely away. I've lost all my conviction. I don't have a particle of concern about my soul. It must be that the Spirit of God has left me. I never was so far from being concerned about my salvation in my life. And then I remember what I had said to God while I was on my knees, that I would take him at his word. And so I recalled many things I had said and concluded that it was no wonder the Spirit had left me I imagined that for such a sinner as I was, to take hold of God's word in that way was presumption, if not blasphemy. I concluded that in my excitement I had grieved the Holy Spirit and perhaps even committed the unpardonable sin. I walked quietly toward the village, and so perfectly quiet was my mind that it seemed as if all nature listened. I'd gone into the woods immediately after an early breakfast, and when I returned to the village, I found it was lunchtime, and yet I was totally unaware of the time that had passed. It appeared to me that I'd gone from the village only a short time. But how was I to account for the quiet of my mind? I tried to bring back my convictions, to get back again the load of sin under which I had been laboring, 
but all sense of sin, all consciousness of present sin or guilt had departed from me. I said, what is this that I cannot arouse any sense of guilt in my soul as great a sinner as I am? I tried in vain to make myself anxious about my present state. I was so quiet and so peaceful. I tried to feel concerned about it. But no matter what view I took of it, I couldn't be anxious at all about my soul or my spiritual state. The repose of my mind was unspeakably great. The thought of God was sweet to my mind. The most profound spiritual tranquility had taken full possession of me. This was a great mystery. I went to lunch and found I had no appetite to eat. I then went to the office and found that Attorney Wright had gone to lunch. I took down my brass viola, and as I was accustomed to do, I began to play and sing some pieces of sacred music. But as soon as I began to sing those sacred words, I began to weep. It seemed as if my heart were all liquid. My feelings were in such a state that I could not hear my own voice in singing without causing tears to overflow. I wondered at this. I tried to hold back my tears, but could not. After trying in vain to suppress my tears, I put away my instruments, and I stopped singing. Just before evening, I decided that I would try to pray again, that I was not going to abandon the subject of religion and give it up at any rate. By evening, the office was all set. And so I went into a back room. It was dark. Suddenly, everything became liquid in me. All my feelings seemed to rise and flow out, and the utterance of my heart was, I want to pour out my whole soul to God. The raising of my soul was so great that I rushed I rushed into prayer. There was no fire and no light in the room, but it appeared perfectly lit to me. As I went in and shut the door, it seemed to me that I met with the Lord Jesus Christ face to face. He said nothing. He just looked at me in such a manner as to break me down at his feet. He stood before me. I fell down at his feet and poured out my soul to him. I wept aloud like a child and made such confessions as I could with my choked utterance. It seemed to me that I bathed his feet with my tears. I continued in this state for a good while. And then the Holy Spirit came. He didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. He was baptized in the Holy Spirit. Not because he asked for the baptism, but because he sought Jesus. I'm very concerned about you and about me. I don't want us to be fooled by some intellectual understanding of the gospel. 
that allows us to continue to walk, filling our hearts with everything of the world. Remember the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the devil has a lot of good for you if that's what you want. You want the good? Okay, the devil says, great, I'll I'll give you the good. I'll give you anything you want as long as I can block you from getting naked before God. If I can just make you a happy camper and you can feast on all the good things that I'm willing to give you and the devil's willing to give you many good things. He doesn't give just evil things. He gives good things, good things that will take you away from the word of life, good things that will cause you to be full of yourself and never get naked before God and never deal with God like he's a real person. I'm sick and tired of lukewarmness. I will not be lukewarm. I will fight until my last breath to have Jesus Christ, the person, my God, my Savior. And yes, I've experienced the peace of God in my heart. And yes, I've sought for him with all of my heart. But the clue is that I still don't have his, his power. I still speak to the lost and the dying and they don't repent. There's no conviction. In fact, I'm concerned about a lack of conviction in my own heart for the lost and the dying. I know my mind is too filled with other things, too many images, too many pictures, too many concepts, too many good things. I'm I'm cutting the good things out of my life intentionally because I know the devil has a lot of good things he'd like to give me. And I'm saying, no, the only good thing I want is Jesus Christ. I want him and him alone. after him and I guess today I'm inviting you to go with me after God I woke up this morning and the first words out of my mouth were Jesus I'm coming hard after you I'm not going to back off so I'm cutting out the good from my life. I've already cut the evil out. Now I have to cut the good out and I have to have room for Jesus. I've often said, well, this is good. But good is from the devil too. I want Jesus. Do you? Do you want Jesus? Well, you've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. We're almost out of time for today. Christmas Day is coming, the day most filled with emotions more than any other day of the year because of our hopes and expectations. I refuse to buy into the myth of Santa Claus and the whole Christmas deal. I want the born baby Jesus now sitting at the right hand of God.
So what are you going to do? What are you going to do with Jesus? I want to invite you to come to the National Prayer Chapel. Go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com, nationalprayerchapel.com. You can give online to help cover the radio costs for December. It's almost $4,000, and we're still... Uh, yesterday, we received um, $1,200. I'm very grateful for that. But we're still over $1,000 short. Would you help? You can do that online at nationalprayerchapel.com, and you can also find where we meet, uh, the address. It's a house church, and you're welcome to come. We start promptly at 10. Don't come late. Come early and pray with us. Now, I also would love to hear from you. You're welcome to write to me at National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22192. That's National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia. I pray that you and your family will have time together over this holiday that you will not be caught in the foolishness and the drunkenness and the party time of Christmas but will be caught by the Lord Jesus Christ I look forward to hearing you seeing you meeting you God bless you I'll talk to you soon oh and by the way tomorrow a day of prayer Friday will be a a rebroadcast because the station's closed. But tomorrow we will have a prayer meeting. So call and pray. I'll talk to you soon. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.